1: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org. Or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And the good doctor, Professor Luke Galen.
2: What do you get? Secular alternative, like coming you from Michigan, America's Oven Mitt, or you know, America's High oh, that's,
1: Five. See, that's good. That's good. It's a geography joke. Coming up in this show, we have another skeptic Sunday school, the look at the New Testament, and of course, an interview with author Robert Price. On last week's episode, we talked a little bit about the Old Testament, and we looked at the documentary hypothesis about how the Old Testament was. Composed. the The idea being that there are multiple different authors, and this was all put together. Why is it called the documentary hypothesis? Because people made movies different.
2: about it. Different documents. <laughs> Werner Herzog. <What>? For <laughs> our documentary hypothesis, we have our guest Werner Herzog. Oh, I felt this soullessness of his <laughs> eyes.
0: Some would say this kitten is adorable, but I refuse to cuddle it <laughs> because <laughs> cuddling it would be the same as lying to this cat. The world is not a gentle place. <laughs>
1: I didn't go you know, okay. it, and I've <laughs> only seen one Werner <laughs> Herzog movie, and that's Grizzly Man. But it's it's yeah. one of my favorites ever. So, but uh, the documentary hypothesis is this taken as gospel, or is this uh, one of many schools of thought when it comes to biblical criticism?
0: Isn't the documentary hypothesis kind of in decline nowadays?
1: Isn't it just a hypothesis?
0: Well, (laughs) we will leave the is it just a theory stuff behind. Mm -hmm. First of all, the documentary hypothesis, it still is the scholarly consensus in biblical studies right now as to the origins of the Torah. It has been criticized and and it has defenders as well. And so far, it has still won out in the hearts and minds of most of the people in the field. Right. But it is true that In the last couple of decades, especially, there's been a lot of extra heat on the documentary hypothesis. And one of the reasons why is because it can get awfully speculative when people are going in and making the divisions in these texts, you know, trying to figure out what one source is from the other source and how they've been combined. It can be awfully speculative. And oftentimes it's unclear what source a text should belong to. There's also some internal contradictions, some things that are pretty hard to smooth over with the theory. And yeah,
1: but we should just kind of ignore those and focus on the ones that fit with the theory, right?
0: <laughs> well, really, most of what we brought up in that episode, the last episode, the first part of our look at the disunity of the Bible, really doesn't stand on the documentary hypothesis itself. And this is this is key. Why is the documentary hypothesis being criticized? Or rather, what are the alternatives to the documentary hypothesis? The major alternative is a fragmentary hypothesis, which would go even further than saying that there's just four sources. It would see there being multiple, multiple sources, way over four, that have all been edited together.
1: Which I can actually see as a as a student of mythology, I can see um, a lot of credence in that because you see that with um, with these ancient mythologies where – that regional differences between the stories and they all get kind of compiled together at some point. Right. We were to
0: just four. Right. We were answering apologists like McDowell who say that the Bible is a complete and total harmony, that it shows a unity that betrays the hand of the divine. And so I always find it funny when apologists seize upon weaknesses in the documentary hypothesis to support their viewpoint because the alternatives to the documentary hypothesis are make a worse case for the unity of the Bible right. than does the documentary hypothesis. For example, one of, the, one of the best criticisms at the heart of the documentary hypothesis is that there seems to be a fundamental contradiction. The idea is that these contradictions that we find in the text, these discrepancies, are the result of the blurring of these different sources. If you were to go to the individual sources, J, E, D, and P, you would find that those are complete coherent, unified stories without contradiction. And the idea is, though, the final editor, whoever put this all together, was apparently okay with putting together contradictory texts, didn't ha- didn't mind a diversity of influence being brought into the text. If they were of that mind, and they were tolerant of disunity, then why should we assume that the original sources were coherent? Why should we assume that they were unified? Good point. And that's kind of the central critique of the documentary hypothesis. Well, that is also an acknowledgement of the fundamental disharmony, disunity we find in the Bible. It doesn't make the apologist case any better off to say, well, we can just do away with this theory. And besides, even if things don't break in directly into J, E, D, and P sources, it doesn't mean that the particular conflicts that we cited, that the doublets— Uh, Or the differences in worship, the differences in the laws they're supposed to follow, those aren't erased. Those don't vanish with a particular theory that's meant to interpret them. Well, anyways, moving on, this is part two of our look at the disunity of the Bible. For those of you just tuning in, we are trying to counter the claim made by Josh McDowell and other apologists that the unity of the Bible is a strong argument in favor of its divine inspiration. We took the last episode showing that this is not the case, especially in the Old Testament where mm, you get yes. a diversity of opinions, contradictions, discrepancies, anywhere from minor details. Numerical differences. All the way up to themes as broad as how are they to properly worship God? What are the laws they are supposed to creation.
1: follow? Yes. What, yeah. How did creation proceed itself? My question to you is how prevalent is this argument? We have McDowell making this case, but is this a – is the inerrancy of the Bible, the cohesive nature of the Bible an argument that a lot of apologists use or is, or is this an argument that's fallen out of favor?
0: I simply don't know how prevalent it is, but I know from my own personal experience and even talking to other people that this is one of those that is very intuitively appealing. It may people.
1: not be so much with scholars, right. and it may be with scholars, but it certainly is with the with Yeah, it comes up all the time when I argue person. with people yeah. about, yeah.
0: like, you know. I, I think the, it's especially brought up when people feel threatened or challenged. When they are assaulted by doubt on the outside, they they – retreat to this and say, no, but the Bible I read is unified. It
1: tells one story. It's harmonious. And you see that on both sides, both with fundamentalists and with with more liberal people, too, where they say, okay, the stories may differ, but the, the key message is the same, and it's not.
0: Well, we talked about the Old Testament last time. This time, we are moving into the New Testament. Turning to the New Testament, one of the best places to look for disharmonies or discrepancies would be in the Gospels themselves, in their accounts of Jesus, in their explanation of his life and his miracles, his identity, his personal significance. But we've already covered that in two great Reasonable Doubts episodes that you can check out. I think think so too. Those episodes are episodes 26 and 27, cross-examining the four witnesses. And we do encourage you to check those out. So we're going to focus instead on some part of the New Testament that we haven't actually looked at before. And to start us off, I'm going to present you guys with a challenge that I learned way back in my Bible college days. This is something those hardcore dispensationalists taught me. Ooh. Yes, to try nice. to rattle other Christians. And incidentally, I should say this is this is only going to be a challenge to a certain variety of Christians. This will mostly be evangelical Christians that will have a problem we'll with try them. to put ourselves in that mindset. But yes. Um, what is the gospel? Dave and Luke um, as far as what is the good news what do you need to know to be saved Jesus
1: what about Jesus that Jesus was God that's it yeah. you are so going to hell but Jesus is God he's the, the way the truth and life that's all I need Luke can you do better than this
2: well if you were to ask Paul and everything f- since then Paul would say the significance of Jesus is death and resurrection we're not talking w- about what Paul
1: we're actually... talking about about Jesus
2: so, so whatever so the stuff that he talked about and uh, his message ministry was relatively irrelevant to Paul.
0: Well, yes. The gospel that I think a lot of Christians believe in and they w- a lot of born-again Christians believe in and they will preach this to other Christians. This is what you must know and believe to be saved is in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news, that word means gospel, that I proclaimed to you which you in turn received, in which you also stand. Skipping down to verse 3. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve.
1: Oh yeah, the Heidelberg Catechism, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. I was supposed to learn that at some point.
0: This is the Christian Gospel. The next part of the challenge would be to go all the way back to Matthew chapter 3 where you find John the Baptist and Jesus essentially preaching the same message. Matthew chapter 3 verse 3 that is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other passages it says repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is near. And you can see by following following Jesus ministry in the rest of the gospels he's preaching the same message. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, to most Christians that doesn't appear to be any different. Right. To me it does. Well, yeah. One is saying change change your heart, change your mind, turn mm-hmm. away from your sin and do this thing, get baptized, and right. then you'll be saved. And the other one is saying believe in Jesus death, burial and resurrection. But I think most Christians go no, no, that's the that's essentially the same message um, because they if would you have understood in the it to be the same thing. Yeah, you're you're right. Repenting. That's what and when you're yeah. being baptized, you're acknowledging that right. Jesus well, they died.
2: sometimes they they justify the discrepancy by saying uh, Jesus works and his teachings wouldn't have meant anything if he wouldn't have been the Son of God and died and rose right. again right. and, proved, and proved that he was. Right. Otherwise, he just would have been Socrates or something.
0: But where the challenge comes in is if you look at. Matthew chapter 16, this is when Jesus first begins to share with his disciples. It even says in verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and be killed and on the third day be raised. And how do the disciples react to that?
2: They don't know what the hell he's talking about. They have no clue. You're the Messiah. (laughs) What are you talking about?
0: Peter says, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. And then you get, get the whole, behind me, Satan. Yep. This is in Matthew. This isn't just the text where if, if you're familiar with if you're familiar with the Gospels, we mentioned Mark in those episodes was the messianic secret. People didn't know about Jesus. This is in Shh, Matthew. Don't tell. Where people are held accountable to knowing who Jesus is. Right. And even in Matthew here. They're clueless. They don't know what this death, burial and resurrection is. So the question is. If they have in all the chapters previous, all the way up to chapter 16, if they're going into the villages of of Israel, if they're out there preaching the gospel, and Jesus has been too, what have they been preaching if it doesn't include Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? If they don't even understand, and that sounds odd to them, that that's what Jesus is going to do, they must be preaching a different gospel. In other words, they're preaching a gospel, yes, Repent and be baptized. This means become a righteous person. Forsake all your unrighteous deeds. Live be identified lives. be identified with our community through baptism. Why? Because the kingdom is coming, because the end is near, and then you will get access into the kingdom. If you're familiar with uh, debates in Christian theology, you're probably noticing what's coming up here. This is the whole faith versus works dichotomy. Right. So, did you guys ever encounter this in your churches? Were you guys works believers, or were you faith believers?
2: See, as, as a Lutheran, we always emphasize that was what Martin Luther's contribution was, is because the Catholic Church right. was evil with its buying indulgences and work, work, sure. work, and that and that what Luther added was his revelation from Paul. I think it was what Romans or what that by by faith, especially alone. in Galatians too. By faith alone, you're justified, not by works. And that so as Lutherans, we kind of emphasize then that's the contribution of us is that it's there's nothing you can do. It's it's right. all faith.
1: And that, that was the same thing for me as a, a good Christian Reformed Calvinist where sure. we're totally depraved. There's nothing we can do to make up for our sinful nature. You believe and God either chooses to save you or not. But you do works to show that you are a godly person, but it doesn't – that can never save you. There, n- right. No amount of good deeds can save you from the horrible evil that um, spews forth from you just by breathing.
0: Right. And in, and in fact, believing that you could somehow work your way into heaven, be well, righteous enough. That is that is sinful. Yeah. And this is a very Pauline idea. In Galatians 2 verse 21, Paul says, For if justification comes from the law, then Christ died for nothing. In Galatians 5 4, he says, you who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Hmm. That's just how serious Paul seems to view it. Paul sees, says that we are we are not under the Jewish law. As Christians, we would not be under the Jewish law. This is Paul's view, and I, I was raised in the same background. We, we were grace okay. believers, faith believers. Uh, none of this work stuff. Well, so I'm wondering if, as it did for me, if it ever bothered you, when you read Jesus saying the exact opposite, uh, for example, Matthew twenty-five, that parable about the sheep and the goats. Mm-hmm. If you don't know the story, right? All the all the people of the nations are gathered before God at the end of the world, uh, before the Son of Man, and He's separating them out. He's putting the uh, the goats on the left. The goats are the the, the bad believers. <laughs> And he's putting the sheep on the right. The sheep are the are the or the good believers. The good believers. Which is
2: a a, a great analogy. As right Christopher Hinton says, Sheep you are then, sir. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. That's right. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was the stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was in prison and you visited me. Now, what do these sheep say to Jesus right after this or the Son of Man right after this? But when
2: did we ever do that?
0: (laughs) Exactly. This is in verse 37. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry, gave you food, or, or thirsty, gave you something to drink, blah, 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 blah. And he says, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me.
1: Just very exclusive to members of my family.
0: So in other words, the sheep are accepted in because they've done good works. Right. They didn't even know they were doing it for Jesus. Yeah. They weren't just paying lip service to their God or doing it because they were righteous. They were just doing good works. They did the right thing. Then you see with the goats, it's the opposite. And the goats protest. He got their goat. <laughs> the, the goats, in other words, had professed some sort of faith. I right. guess it doesn't actually say they professed faith. Uh, but the idea is that the goats thought they were righteous. Yes. And they were wrong because they weren't actually doing good works. When did we see you and ignore you?
2: Just that day over there, was you walked right past and you didn't say hi.
0: <laughs> now, Paul in Galatians says that we are not... Under the law, um, that we could not follow the law even if – perfectly even if we wanted to. Because we're so filthy and sinful. Or even that right. the
2: existence of the law itself is only there to show you how crappy you are.
0: Right. And he says you know, it's it's been done away with, that Jesus' coming has abolished this law. Well, doesn't that contradict with what Jesus said? He <laughs> says that not one jot or tittle will vanish from the law. He tells his followers that they should be obeying the law even better than the Pharisees did.
2: That's one thing that always got me debating with Christians, that they always say when I point out contradictions, they say, well, Jesus changed all that and then all the rules were off. But where does Jesus ever say, "Okay, everything after this point's changed and here's what's changed? He never specifically –
1: even the Gospels is is recorded to have said. In fact, isn't he supposed to be a fulfillment of the law?
2: (laughs) Yes,
0: exactly that. He expressly contradicts that. He says in Matthew He says, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill the law.
2: Right. So this whole take that all the rules are different now that Jesus has come and what we have to do is focus on him, his person rather than the stuff he talks about is a Pauline creation.
0: Yes, very much so.
2: Or, Or you could make a case that John is the only gospel that goes in that. Direction.
0: Y- yes, John three sixteen. You do get mention of faith, and, and he's belief. always talking
2: about himself. And John, whereas the other three, right. his he's not the focus. So of John
0: his. might be the exception here,
1: but, but John I, is also written later than the other gospels.
0: That's true. John is one of the latest of the gospels, and so the point here is to those apologists who claim there's harmony all over the Bible that it's one consistent message and it's about Jesus and his salvation for mankind. The New Testament itself, we've already discussed how the gospels can't work together. Right. Uh, but the New Testament itself doesn't have a fundamental agreement about matters as important as the basis of your salvation. And this isn't just a conflict between the Pauline epistles and the gospels. This is found in the other epistles as well. For example, James chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone is what James is saying. In direct contradiction to Romans 3.28, which says, For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works ascribed to the law.
2: Bart Ehrman's um, explanation for that he says, or he says some people explain that, is by what James is using the term faith and works differently than the way that Paul uses the term faith and yes. works. So the contradiction might only be apparent because he means empty, empty faith or faith that doesn't have anything uh, in it.
0: yeah 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 I've I've read Ehrman's position on that and I, I think it's a hold back back from his apologist days. I I don't think I don't think those verses can be harmonized in part and even Ehrman acknowledges this in part because in both those passages the passage in James and uh, in another passage in Galatians they both refer to Abraham Uh, Paul says nobody is justified by uh, works because Abraham just believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And James says, well, Abraham believed when he agreed to sacrifice his son Isaac. When he he was ready to go through that, through his work, his faith was completed and justified. So that's one reason why I don't think those can be harmonized is that they, they go into a little bit more depth. But even more so, I think these can't be harmonized because we have preserved in other places in the New Testament that there was a conflict. There was a conflict between Paul, his ministry, and specifically between James. James is often referred to as a member of the circumcision faction. And Which if you is look at
2: the title, you probably wouldn't always want to band <laughs> no, about. No,
1: not always.
2: We're the circumcision brothers. We got T-shirts. <laughs> I'll take two.
1: The women may sign up, but the men a little more reluctant. Wouldn't
2: they want to call themselves the Enhancement Brigade? Or?
0: <laughs> that, that must be great for when they're playing sports, right? Hats versus are, no hats.
2: <laughs> skins and no skins.
0: <laughs> but no, this conflict between James. James writes his epistle to uh, not to Gentiles. He, he actually addresses it to the 12 tribes in dispersion. And you get uh, this conflict
1: in... E- even the tribe that's in America? No, he forgot about that. Oh, of course, everyone forgets about the evil tribe. That's the Laman brothers. No, no, Lamanites. Yes, yes.
0: In Galatians two, uh, verses eleven through fourteen, we get Paul telling a story of how he gets in—he gets in Peter's face. The apostle Peter's face. Peter is eating food with these dirty Gentile dogs who now are are believers in Christ. And when he hears that people from James' faction are around, Peter kind of chickens out and decides not to eat with these Gentiles. So, Galatians 2, verse 12 For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction.
2: <laughs> they were coming for him. <laughs> drop, <laughs> drop him. No! Although Peter, as a Jew, was probably
0: already covered or uncovered. Yeah, you could see why the Gentiles would be afraid of the circumcision <laughs> faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas, Paul's buddy, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before all of them, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? So this this is not just James and Paul talking about different things. These are these are two different factions. They have a different interpretation of what the law means and its importance to people. So and we also, in acts, we also have an acts we also also have an acts whole conferences that are held By the apostles to try to figure these issues out, exactly what laws do the Gentiles have to follow. So this conflict and really this disagreement over salvation, works, the role of the law is very well preserved for us in these texts.
2: You can also see that there's one uh, really clear one where one of the stories in the – I forget which epistle it is – has Paul converting on the road to Damascus and immediately going up to Asia Minor to preach – I mm-hmm. forget where it was, Galatia or Ephesus. But then the other version, it was Paul had to go check it out with the apostles in Jerusalem first and be approved by That's them. That's exactly it. Mm. Yeah so Luke, which it's, is
0: it? It's, uh, it's Acts. In the book of Acts, I think we're going to talk to Robert Price in a minute, and he has a different interpretation. But the the one that seems to make the most sense to me is that the book of Acts is trying to soften over how harsh Paul's views are and is trying to and is trying to actually say that these conflicts were either resolved or that Paul wasn't as extreme cuz it starts out actually being about was. Peter
2: right. and then it seems right. flows into Paul to show them I have a peace right so they're all just uh, on the same page and in
0: that one as soon as Paul has his conversion experience he's blind and he goes stay he goes and stays with some believers and then he meets the different apostles to um, get
2: the approval in right. Jerusalem
0: now when you actually look at Paul's writings himself in Galatians 1 11 through 20, he basically repudiates this. He says, I don't get any authority from those apostles. My thing is completely different here. Let me read a portion of it. He said, Galatians 1 verse 16, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me. So he's saying he didn't. He says, then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem and visit Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him for about 15 days. But I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother, in what I am writing. And before God, I do not lie. And then he goes on. He says, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And he says, this is to have a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders of the gospels. And this is to talk about his issue, basically, that he's preaching to the Gentiles and others don't want to. He said, we did not submit to them even for a moment so that the truth of of the gospel might always remain with you, he says, and from those who were supposed who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, and in parentheses, what they actually were makes no difference to me, those leaders contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that i'd been given the gospel for the uncircumcised, you know basically they they then leave in peace you know it's pretty clear Paul is denying Paul wants complete originality for the message of his gospel. He expressly denies that the other apostles had any sort of role in it. He's acknowledging what is evident in these texts, and that is he has a very different ministry, a very different conception of Jesus and salvation, one which did not always harmonize with the other Apostles.
2: You could make a case so that Paul, that what Paul didn't care about was that fact that he came along too long after the show, never even met Jesus, blah blah blah. Never and, really and all believed that Jesus
1: was a real had person. Had cred
2: like James, the brother of Jesus. All these people had cred, and he didn't have any cred. So what's he have to preach? Is he going to preach his knowledge of what Jesus said? He didn't have any. So he has right. to. Be, he's in some That's, ways he's forced to rely on his own personal revelation. That is a good point. I've often thought that the more evangelical hardcore people that you meet they tend to emphasize more Paul and surprisingly I guess to me downplay the the gospels and I think that there's almost a psychological reason there too is that if you focus on the faith part rather than the works part that's inf- that like we talked about in the last episode that kind of allows you to lead a, to ignore a certain lifestyle or th- crazy liberal things that Jesus says, and like you know, like you just read in Matthew with the visiting prisoners, things like that. If, you, right. if you're emphasizing Paul, it's all about what I believe, not what I've done. You right. know? And, and so it allows you, in some ways, to to escape uh, escape a lot of the behavioral requirements that Jesus put on.
0: And it's, it's hard to be doctrinal too. I mean if, if the mindset of a fundamentalist is looking for a lot of structure and order and being able to pronounce definite right or wrongs on different issues, that's hard to find in the gospel. It's There's not a lot of meat there theologically. It's It's stories about his life, a lot of almost wisdom type passages, all these parables which are a lot of times incoherent. Very bizarre mystic stories.
2: Even your own staff doesn't get them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If, if you want clear-cut distinctions, you, t- you turn to Paul. Well, we are going to have on the show now Dr. Robert Price. Dr. Price is uh, – well, he was a fellow of the Notorious Jesus Seminar. Mm-hmm. He's written many controversial books on biblical scholarship – uh, including one that's coming up about the Apostle Paul. It hasn't been released yet. Called the Amazing Colossal Apostle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, you, I love how um, uh, Robert Price's love of science fiction always seeps through <laughs> in, in the titles of his books. The Incredible, Incredible Shrinking, Shrinking Son of, son of man. man, and mm-hmm. hey, you gotta
0: love that. And he is advancing in that book quite a radical thesis, I I think maybe even a little more controversial than I'm willing to accept. But it's definitely interesting and worth hearing him out. But he doubts how much of these books, these epistles were even written by Paul, if they may not have been written by somebody else. Joining us on the show is Dr. Robert M. Price. He is the professor of biblical criticism at the Center for Inquiry Institute, as well as the editor of the Journal of Higher Criticism. His books include Deconstructing Jesus, the Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, and the upcoming book, The Amazing Colossal Apostle. Dr. Price, thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Oh, it's a So I read your book, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, and it completely changed my view on the history of the Gospels. And I wanted to thank you for what an incredible book that is, bringing together all all these different lines of evidence. And I'm very excited to hear that you have a book along the same lines on the Apostle Paul coming out soon.
3: The good old uh, amazing colossal apostle. Uh, As you can tell, I try to get my book, titles uh, with the uh, impeccable scholarly uh, diction. I have another one on the resurrection I've written called Night of the Living Savior.
0: uh. I'm I'm sure there's there's a small group of people that are absolutely delighted by that, and and probably more people are like, huh? (laughs) But... uh, I'm fascinated to, to see what you have to say about the Apostle Paul. We've been talking about that on the show today, differences between the Gospel accounts of Jesus' teachings and what you'll find in the epistles of Paul. And surprisingly, one of the things we talked about is that Paul really says virtually nothing about Jesus' life and sometimes makes you wonder if he really knew much about Jesus' life.
3: hmm That's right. Yeah. It's, uh... There's uh, this really, it was slow and dawning on me. I think the first time I read about it uh, was uh, in uh, the great book, uh, The Jesus of the Early Christians by G.A. Wells. Uh, it just had never occurred to me. I, I kind of assumed Paul was taking uh, as read uh, pretty much what was in the Gospels, but uh, it. Uh, Because there are a couple of places where it sort of sounds like that, but it doesn't really bear scrutiny. He never mentions Jesus doing any miracles and actually says that, uh, though some people would prefer his preaching uh, to be verified or corroborated by miracles, he has none to offer, which is pretty astonishing (laughs) if he had known the Gospels. He doesn't seem to know that Jesus was a teacher. Uh, there's uh, two or three places where he says he has a word of the Lord, but in context it seems to mean that he he has a revelation of, from the, the Ascended Lord or the Heavenly Lord or something. He doesn't say, well, you know, Jesus of Nazareth once said. There's no intro like that. Uh, and uh, then uh... This, the business about anything that happened to jesus who who put him to death it's no mention of any roman government uh... or, or herodian authorities it's all the, the principalities and powers in Colossians, the archons of this age. In other words, angelic entities put him to death in some unknown, uh, unstated uh, scenario. We don't know where. I mean, to me, that sounds like, exactly like Gnosticism, where it says the primordial man of light, the uh, same thing as a cosmic son of man figure, was ripped to shreds by the archons. Of uh, the, the creatures of the demiurge, and uh, his his light body was used to invigorate the creation. In fact, I think that is the reference. And so you begin to think, wait a minute, did this Paul uh, know anything about the gospel of Jesus? Uh, some say, well, about Galatians, uh, where it says that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Uh, and uh <laughs> uh what uh, it's interesting that uh that Tertullian, who tries to refute the paulinist heretic so called Marcion, who believed mm. Jesus just uh, descended from heaven in adult form and sort of a ghost actually, he never mentions that phrase, which uh, certainly implies it wasn't in the text yet uh, and and can you imagine? Somebody bothering to say, uh, "Well, let me tell you about the Carl Sandberg. Uh, he was <laughs> born of a woman. He as if had this, human he, parents.
0: As if this gives us additional information yeah, about and him. And of course,
3: it does. That's the whole point of it. Someone is trying to refute this idea that Jesus wasn't really a flesh and blood human being. And uh, and then there's a couple of other things like the." Uh, the thing in 1 Corinthians on the night he was betrayed, etc., etc. But uh, this seems to be either an interpolation, it kind of interrupts the context. Or it is, if it isn't, the writer is claiming not to have this from historical memory, as Haim uh, as, uh, Maccabee pointed out, but as a direct revelation from Christ, in the same way that in Galatians 1 you have a statement, I wasn't taught this gospel by any mortal. I received it directly from Christ. Uh, so that kind of means, you know, where did this all come from? He, 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 wouldn't it wouldn't have been easy and uncontroversial to simply say, yeah, this is what the Christian faith says, and, and so on, and, and this is what the Apostles told me, and uh, does not say that.
0: In fact, Paul even seems to distance himself from the Apostles. He wants to establish the fact that his authority um, comes from a source outside. And even though the Gospel of Luke uh, talks about Paul seeing the the uh, the Apostles shortly after his conversion – uh, doesn't Paul himself insist that you know he he didn't even meet Peter or James or anybody until like three years after his conversion, and even then he's only hanging out with them for two weeks, uh, mm-hmm. and and that he he I believe he says something like I did not confer with any human being, so Paul seems to want to place his own authority well outside of the apostles or even the life of Christ.
3: Yeah, and then you you think to yourself, well, gee, isn't it odd that a letter by Paul himself would seem to be trying to correct a false impression made by the book of Acts? Uh, wait a second. Did Paul really write Galatians? And several scholars have thought for, uh, oh, since the 19th century, that no, he didn't, uh, that even this one of the four principal epistles is uh, uh F. C. Bauer called them uh, that must have been written by Paul. Uh, well, maybe no, it wasn't. Maybe this part of Galatians, at least, is actually trying to correct acts, and, and that opens Pandora's box to the chaos. I think we really have that uh, Paul becomes just as shadowy a figure as as any ostensible historical Jesus. I'm not. So, I, I think there was a Paul, uh, though. That is almost a. Uh, more likely to be a title than a name uh, I think the um though we can know little about this man either there there's some reason to believe that there was a Simon Magus as they call him in, in acts uh and that uh he was identified uh, with paul and so we we have we've got that covered up in acts and I think the letters were written by uh Marcionites and Gnostics later. And that Luke's account, or Acts' account, I should say, of um, Paul's life and conversion, etc., is just transparently borrowed from the miraculous conversion story of Heliodorus in 2 Maccabees 3, and of King Pentheus in Euripides the Bacchae, it's so close, and the influence of the Bacchae on Luke at many points is so clear, it really would be very uh, surprising if, if the, the influence wasn't on that well, it had to be in that direction. The I' had been written for hundreds of years, and it was certainly well known. So I think the, the story of Paul we read in Acts is sheer fiction, and we can even see where it was taken from. So who was this guy? And so were any, does anything in the epistles go back to him? Just as when we read the Gospels now, we say, did Jesus say anything that's recorded here? Or have other people done him the favor of attributing their uh, wisdom to him?
0: Now you said you believe that the letters may very well have been written by the Marcionites. For our listeners, I'd like you to explain more. Who who are the Marcionites, and who is uh, the leader of their community, and, and what was their their particular take on on Christianity?
3: I guess you could say. Well, we've always uh, simply uh, taken the the New Testament as at its word, and figured that there must have been a kind of Pauline Torah free uh Christianity neck and neck or should sort I of say cheek by jowl or whatever uh with uh with uh, Jewish Christianity represented by Peter and James who felt that well Jesus is the Jewish Messiah he certainly uh must want his followers to keep the Jewish law but that, that over here their big opposition was uh Pauline or at least Hellenistic Christianity uh where Paul and others said, Well at least the Gentile converts don't have to keep the Torah, why should they have to? And uh, that there was this wing of Pauline Christianity, and that all these churches—Corinth, uh, Galatia, Iconium—and all these places were Pauline, the Pauline sphere of influence. But what other evidence do we have of a distinctive Pauline Christianity in the uh, in the actual uh, first century New Testament period? Uh, I say uh, none, because everything we later read about uh, the, these churches. Uh, They seem never to have heard of any of this stuff, any of the the Pauline doctrines and so on. So the the earliest actual Pauline Christians we know of were Marcionites. Now, who is this? Uh, Somewhere at the end of the uh, first century, probably a little earlier than has been thought, there was this uh, shipbuilder, Marcion, which just means Margie. it's just a a, a, derivative. Derivative name, Little Mark uh, Marcion from Pontus in Asia Minor. Uh, he uh, came to he um, Tertullian makes this astonishing statement that Marcion discovered the Epistle to the Galatians, uh, which yeah. makes me think it means he wrote it, uh, just like Joseph Smith discovered the Book of Mormon, and um, that uh, so, so Marcion came up with the idea that uh, the twelve disciples of Jesus were uh, nitwits who didn't understand the distinctive message of Jesus and could not separate themselves from their ancestral Judaism and mixed the two faiths. But in fact, uh, he believed uh, that Jesus was the son of a different God. He was not the son of the creator God, the God of Judaism, who had given the laws to Moses. Uh, not that there's anything particularly wrong with that God, though he's kind of a rough customer, but uh, he and he's <laughs> dire and unforgiving uh, to the wicked. Uh, but um, uh, the Old Testament, Marcion thought, is accurate and so on. But it has mm-hmm. nothing to do with Christianity. Uh, the, the Hebrew God will send a militaristic Messiah for his his uh, people, the nation of Israel, but that's that's not Jesus. Jesus was the son uh, of a different God, a hitherto unknown God, who only loves. Uh, he's not going to punish anybody. And um, he wants you to do what is right simply because it's right. And uh, there's no hell he's going to send anybody to. And uh, he has uh, contracted with the creator God uh, to uh, be able to uh, offer sonship and, I guess, would say, daughtership to any of the creature, the creator's creatures, whom then uh, Jesus, as God, would adopt as sons and daughters. And uh, the the Torah, the law, would not apply to them. And when they died, they would go to heaven to be with that God and not have to face the judgment of the creator. And uh, that Jesus' death, in some way, had to do with this buying the uh, the. Uh, souls of the uh, creators people to make them the adopted sons and daughters of the father of Jesus Christ and so there are two gods and uh, Jesus meant to preach that and in fact there are little hints of that in the gospels which contain Marcionite ideas uh, no one has ever seen God uh, but, uh, the, but the only begotten son who was in the bosom of the father has made him known what about Moses and Abraham and all these guys? Well, they weren't seeing the father of Jesus Christ. Uh or uh, how about the you know oh yeah the, the Moses gave you the law, but but a grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Or how about uh, in Matthew and Luke where Jesus says, uh, "Father, I praise you, you revealed these things into babes and hid them from the wise, uh for such was your gracious will." Uh and he says, um No one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son may deign to to reveal to him. Nobody knows God? Well, uh, that would make sense if he's revealing a new God. And uh, and and so there's this, and there's a lot of uh, things that look different if you put Marcion's glasses on. And so he said that the disciples were such losses, and which is the way they're depicted in the Gospels. Uh, they never understand anything. That uh, the risen Christ had to go find somebody else to carry the real message, and that was Paul. And the reason he doesn't quite sound that way in the epistles now is that the Catholic Church, stemming from the Apostles, has um, has taken the Pauline texts of the Marcionites and their cousins, the Gnostics and others, and, and uh, redone them, such as adding to Galatians, born of a woman, born under law. And so uh, this caught on. Oh yeah, one of the things, he figured since the uh, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, has nothing to do with Jesus or Christians. It would be good to have a Christian scripture. And so Marcion wrote this book called the Antithesis, showing the differences between Jesus and Judaism. Hmm. Then he wrote one uh, called uh, the Apostolicon, which was just a collection of uh, uh, Pauline epistles. The only ones, uh, as far as he was concerned, didn't have First and Second Timothy and Titus. Which seemed to be anti marcionite actually, and uh, never heard of those and, and it, they didn 't have some of the texts that we find in ours, but this caught on like wildfire, and the Marcionite church was just suddenly all over the place in the second century, even beyond the roman empire that 's what and- I was
0: going to say if I understand the history right this this kind of was the catalyst to um, arguing over what should be the New Testament canon, correct?
3: Bingo, yeah. Uh, you, they couldn't beat them, so they had to try to co-opt them. It was like Sputnik appearing in space. oh we better hustle and get our own thing up there. Hmm. And it appears uh, that from uh, the work of John Knox and uh, David Trobish and various other people, I think we're on pretty firm ground saying that... Uh, The one who organized a Catholic New Testament uh, was Polycarp of Smyrna, uh, to whom one of the uh, Apostolic Fathers' letters is uh, attributed in their various documents about his martyrdom and so on. Polycarp had a famous meeting with Marcion in which he uh, said that he was the spawn of the devil and he wanted nothing to do with him, etc. And uh, it appears that Polycarp decided to take the, uh, the Apostolican and the one gospel that the Marcionites used, which was a shorter version of Luke, though they didn't call it that, they just called it the gospel. Uh, he took this and decided, well, uh, with a bit of editing, uh, we could domesticate this well enough uh let's do that and, and add the pastoral epistles for Second Timothy and Titus to kind of give the reader a an arrival lens through which to read the others. Um let's pad out the, the Marcionite gospel and make it uh, into uh, Luke's gospel and the, the Theophilus to whom it was uh, addressed is probably Theophilus of Antioch, the church father, this would have been in the second century obviously, and uh, nobody ever mentions or quotes Acts until the second century. And then, uh, let's, uh, let's give, uh, some other perspectives here with some other gospels. Uh, how about John? So, gee, come to think of it, that's kind of Gnostic. We'd better add some passages about the second coming and the Eucharist. Uh, how about, uh, Matthew? That's very big on the Torah, and, and we Catholics don't want to get rid of the Old Testament. Uh, how about, uh, Mark? Uh, and, uh, so, uh, which may originally have been Marcionite, actually, may have been named after Marcion, because in it the apostles are idiots, just as Marcion claimed.
0: Yeah, that's so, what I was going to say. They don't, uh, even at the resurrection, they don't... Uh It isn't told to anyone. They don't seem to
3: understand who he is. Yeah, it's a total disaster. The disciples never understand Jesus. Peter denies him. Judas betrays him. Um, Jesus is willing to give him another chance and tells the women disciples to go uh, tell him, and they don't, and that's the end of the book. Like, who would have written such a thing? Well, uh, the Marcionites would have. And similarly, in John, all the stuff about... uh, the Jews not knowing Jesus' Father. Well, that sure sounds like them. There was even a tradition in Papias that uh, Mar- that Marcion was John's scribe and that he had somehow inserted his own ideas into the Gospel and that for some reason it was too late to get rid of him, but John fired him anyway. <laughs> now, that certainly means that early uh, Catholics understood that, yeah, there is Marcionite content in it, but what are we going to do? Uh, others said Cerinthus wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, there was a group, a faction that didn't want it in the canon, but Polycarp figured once it was sanitized, it was all right. And so let's have four Gospels, not just the one. Uh, and uh, let's try to rehabilitate the image of the other disciples by adding on a sequel to the padded version of Luke, the Acts of the Apostles. And while we're at it uh let's uh, we can't really counterbalance paul but let's try to get epistles attributed to some of the names mentioned in acts uh uh so we have some James, some John, though technically that doesn't have a name uh Jude, one of the relatives mentioned in acts one and uh and so it's it's not much but there it is, and uh there are even puns uh in the he who uh one of the added passages in John, he who uh, abides in me will bear much fruit. Polycarpos. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh in the pastoral epistles, uh Bring the, uh, my uh, cloak and the books I left with carpus uh, and so on. And uh, I think Trobish uh, really convinces me. And so he set forth the first Catholic edition of the New Testament, Polycarp. But uh, there was no, he hadn't enough authority to enforce it. And uh, though it was popular and, and much copied, and our earliest manuscripts seemed to descend from his selection. But then it was about that 200 years later that Athanasius ruled in an Easter letter, 367 A.D., that from now on, he had the authority. He was a buddy of Constantine, and he said, from now on, no one uses any books other than these, and he listed our 27. (laughs) Uh, But the the selection goes back to Polycarp. It just wasn't officially promulgated until uh, Athanasius, and even then... Copies of the New Testament have some fewer and some more, so it took a while for even that to stick so Marcion, even if you think, oh no, no, he was a fake and a heretic, he certainly seemed to be the catalyst to have a new testament at all and But I think he he was the uh the first paulinist and and it 's my uh, theory that uh, well, they, the church fathers all said he was a disciple of Simon Magus, and I think that's basically right—that he was a Simonian and uh, and had. But Simon was more of a radical and uh, ascetic, and so on, and that uh, Marcion actually toned it down a bit and made it a little more livable. And um, he began to write letters attributed to, uh, to to Paul, which means the little one, which was also uh, a title of Simon. He was known, among other things, as Atomas, the small one. And uh, so I think the historical Paul, insofar as there was one, was Simon Magus, the so-called sorcerer. F.C. Bauer had already connected the two, only he thought that Paul was the original and Simon was the caricature. I tend to go with Hermann Dettering and to say, no, it's just the reverse. Simon was the original. Paul is the Catholicized, um, sanitized uh, analog for Simon. And that then the epistles began to be written by Marcionites, then straight out Gnostics, and then uh, Catholic Christians. None of it goes back to the Paul we usually think of.
0: It, it's very, very fascinating, and so much of this I'm hearing for the first time, and I, I have to say, I don't, I don't even know what to say.
3: Well, it goes back to the 19th century, so-called Dutch radical critics, but even F.C. Bauer, who thought only the four main epistles—Galatians, Romans, Corinthians, one and two—were by Paul. Uh, he knew of this, but, but. Uh, rejected it. Uh, and yet, uh, I find uh, there's a tiny group of us today who believe, no these guys were right. It's, it's just so such an affront. You see, all these critics, even though they could throw the historical Jesus to, to the lions, they were basically Lutherans. So it didn't really matter as long as you could get your theology from Paul. But then it, it turns out, if if these texts don't come from a single authoritative person uh, if they're a patchwork of all kinds of stuff, that's just a, a bog as well, and there's, it's an uncertain bugle, like in First Corinthians uh, fourteen, I think it is. Uh, and they, and if, you, if you say that, you just can't play the game anymore. You cannot quote uh, the, the epistles as any sort of an authority anymore, and that's simply unacceptable. Uh, Daryl Dowdy, uh, recently deceased, sadly, he and I. Um, Sort of recovered this stuff and presented at the Paul seminar the West Institute the mm. the people that do the Jesus seminar they they were practically measuring us for straight jackets, <laughs> even this supposedly critical group
0: i I guess one question is what what do you make then of the Paul's origin story within within the Gospel of Luke and within the epistles itself his story of of being a Pharisee uh, a Pharisee who has Roman citizenship, but has been gone through uh, rabbinical training. Uh, is Is this all manufactured too? Or oh
3: yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, it's I knew there was the...
0: evidence for this. Like, if you look at the Luke accounts, if you scrutinize, I mean, rather Acts. If you look at the eight accounts in Acts and you scrutinize it with with his his telling, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of evidence that doesn't line up. Even even the two accounts within the Book of Acts itself, there's contradictions.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm and i can't believe that the author was so stupid he didn't see that rather he he understood he was writing a literary work and didn't want to just bore the reader stiff as he as he risks doing for instance in chapter 11 where he almost word for word retells chapter 10 yeah. Uh, and here he decided to change it up a bit, uh, and uh, a good bit. There are three versions of, of Paul's conversion, and one of them leaves out Ananias. Uh, there's a difference between whether Paul alone uh, saw anything uh, and heard the voice, or whether his traveling right. companions did. And I don't think the author really cared so much about the details, uh, but he Judaizes Paul for the sake of keeping the Old Testament and, and making it one God. But if you look at the way in which Scripture is used in the Pauline Epistles, as uh, as Maccabee points out, uh, it really sounds more like the Nag Hammadi use of Scripture. Uh, it, uh, it does not sound like uh, anything like any technical rabbinic um, use. In so far, I mean, except in so far, some very basic ideas like reasoning from a lesser case to a greater one, but that was common Greek uh, polemical logic. And, in fact, that's where Hillel got it, as as all now acknowledge. Uh, all the rabbinic techniques of scripture interpretation came from uh, the Stoics and others. Um, the Palestine was thoroughly Hellenized long before. But uh, there's nothing that uh, looks like... Uh, you read a book like... Uh, what is it? Uh, Paul and Judaism by W. D. Davies considered a classic. Trying to show what light is shed upon Paul by reading the the, uh, the Mishnah. All I can say, having read that, is a mountain labored and brought forth a mouse. It really shows how unrabbinical Paul was and uh, there's and this idea of him having been a pharisee it's it just uh, nothing supports that it's in act oh the idea that he was a roman citizen how does this come up well it comes up in a story where if it were true paul would have mentioned this long before he did yeah he just
0: springs it on him all yeah so. it's just
3: it's good for dramatic purposes like everything else in acts but it just doesn't hold water and the um, I guess it was the Ebionite, Jewish Christians, they were willing to believe Paul had been a Pharisee. But they said, this guy is so un-Jewish, uh, he, he couldn't have been a Jew. And they had this tradition that Paul was a Gentile who, who converted to Judaism because he wanted to marry the daughter of the high priest which the Rechabites did, and that might actually make some sense that he had ju- a guy could join the, uh, could be a member of the Rechabite sect, a kind of a Qumran sort of a group. But they said he couldn't hack it and was, and was rejected by his would-be father-in-law and then decided to start his own thing. Well, I don't think that's true necessarily, but it does show how even Jewish Christians said, this character is not Jewish. Where does that come from? And uh I, I think that's that's so. It's just an attempt to Judaize Paul. Just as you know, the thing where I think it's in twenty one where Paul meets James, the brother of Jesus, again, and mm-hmm. uh James says, "Look, I, I hate to tell you this, but uh, all of our people are zealots for the law, and they hear that you go all over the Mediterranean telling Jews not to circumcise their kids. Well, of course, uh, we know better than that, right? So, why don't you take this money you brought and uh, and pay for the uh, the." ritual cleansing of a bunch of our guys who are coming to the end of a Nazarite vow, which you are too, aren't you? And that way, everybody will see this public event oh, wink, and know that there's wink, nothing wink. to what they've heard. <laughs> You're a good Jew. Yeah. It's so phony, you get the impression that James is actually suggesting a scheme right, of, right out of I Love Lucy or something. And, and it's just all literary. It's an attempt to create a Jewish Christian Paul
0: well this is this is amazing. Um, when is this book coming out?
3: I wish I could hurry them up on it a bit. Uh, they said it 's sort of on the back burner for the moment they don 't publish a whole lot of books uh, and uh, and once I get into it uh, there 's going to be a grueling editorial uh, process because the guy I work with tries to rewrite everything I write at that publisher, so I, uh, I had that trouble with the pre-Nicene New Testament. Uh, so I, it's, I'd be surprised if it was even out in a year, if I could find somebody else to publish it, I might do it.
0: Well, this has all been really fascinating, and I can't wait to read the book. Um, <laughs> before I let you go, I wanted to just get your take on another question. We've been, the past couple of episodes, responding to a claim made by Christian apologist Josh McDowell. Uh, His basic claim is that the – well, in his words, although this book, meaning the Bible, was composed by men, it is a unity that betrays the hand of the Almighty. There is complete harmony which cannot be explained by coincidence or collusion. The unity of the Bible is a strong argument in the favor of its divine inspiration. Now, you know the Bible just as well as, as just about anyone else out there. And I was wondering, what's your take on McDowell's claim?
3: Well, that's just utterly ludicrous. Uh, On the one hand, if all of these books come from a single religion, there's no big surprise that you'd have uh, a kind of broad uh, commonality, but it, it stops pretty fast, and mcdowell and his buddies are able to maintain this illusion in their own minds simply because uh... they have at the ready a whole bunch of harmonizations of what even they admit are apparent contradictions say like, james seems to disagree with paul okay but that's just apparently uh, if you could get them together in the same room in my imagination uh, if you could get them <laughs> to agree uh... Well, wait a minute wait a minute you're telling me it's only from the standpoint of faith in the inspiration of the bible that a harmonization would appear plausible someone outside of it without that agenda without that urgency would see that it apparently that is plain sense on the surface does not agree well then you're admitting there is no impressive unity because these guys do handbooks, dictionaries, encyclopedias mm-hmm. of biblical contradictions, and how to try to pass them off. Uh, if you do that, you are admitting there is no such apparent seamless unity. You're just saying, well, give us some time, and we can try to come up with an you know, now let me explain. <laughs> and so it's just utter hypocrisy, but to give them... Um, to damn them with faint praise, the uh, the uh, apologists like McDowell are just pseudo intellectuals whose brainwaves do not arise to the level that they can see that they're they're simply spin doctors and propagandists. Uh, to put it mildly.
0: <laughs> uh, well, in his sense, that's charitable because you're not calling them
3: frauds at Yeah, most. That's what they're, I mean. Yeah, I diluted, assume they believe frauds. it, but they just they can't connect what they're doing. Hmm.
0: I've often thought that one of the best ways to – if if you were trying to uncover probable contradictions and, and flaws in the Bible, one of the best ways to do it would be just to crack open an apologetics text.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: And you could get a nice little index of them.
3: Yeah, they don't seem to realize the fatality of their position, that if you base your view of biblical authority – on the notion that uh, the plain sense of the text is what we go by, unlike those Catholic opponents of Martin Luther uh, allegorizing and so on. No, 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 it's, you just read it like any other text, so the plain sense is normative. But then you say there are apparent contradictions. You're admitting that it contradicts itself on the very level on which it's supposed to be authoritative. Mm-hmm. You could try to get out of that by going into allegorizing it, but then you open Pandora's box to the theosophists, the Catholics, any sectarian lunatic that wants to do gematria with the Bible. And they don't want they know better than that, but they just again, it's a completely incoherent model of biblical authority.
0: I totally agree. Well, thank you so much Dr. Price for joining us on the show. Is there a website where our listeners can check out more of your writings and and a list of your books and
3: oh yeah, there's all kinds things. of uh, stuff in which one can get mired at uh, my uh, website Robert M Price no dots or anything one name Robert M Price then dot mindvender dot com mindvender spelled M I N D V E N D O R
0: Oh, and I almost forgot the the Bible Geek podcast.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. I may be doing one tonight, in fact.
0: Great, great. It's it's, it's incredible. I always really enjoy listening to it. And,
3: oh, I appreciate that.
0: And I know our listeners would, would, if they don't already know about it, would find that to be a, a fantastic podcast. Well, thank you so much again, uh, Dr. Price, for joining us on this. Uh, thanks for levels. putting
3: up with me.
1: Now, we've got ourselves another Stranger Than Fiction. Christian couples share email addresses to stay faithful. This is a new trend that's sweeping the nation. You've probably seen this when you get an email from, like, Christina and Paul at?
0: Yeah, I've noticed that. Or Facebook accounts, too. They're combined Facebook accounts, I've noticed. Yeah.
2: I've merged both my cats to the same email.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is a a big movement amongst some Christians is to share email addresses because, according to this article from the AP, it acts as a safeguard against the ever-expanding temptations of the Internet. (laughs) Uh, so it says, you can't get a sep- apparently you can't get a separate email address. Your responses, you know about that.
0: That takes all of what five minutes.
1: Yeah, well, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I was just looking at my email before we recorded, and I have nine different email addresses. They all go to the same place, <laughs> but um, that
2: one that you had applied to,
1: what was that? Hot stud. Something? Oh. Sh- oh. Chris, but the wife doesn't know about that one.
2: Chris, I uh,
1: made a mistake on that one. Hung like a bull,
0: <laughs> 49503.
1: But one of the uh, one of the, the gentlemen who who does this, because he had previously had an online relationship um, that he had hidden from his wife of course. before they got a joint email account, it says, it's not a Gestapo KGB quality to it, like I have to check in with my mother before I do anything. It's more like pacifying
0: my wife so she'll leave me
1: alone. Exactly. It's what we believe as Christians we are our brother's keepers, and apparently spouses. It's about biblical accountability. They um, go on to say in this article that it's not a matter of distrust. We really don't have anything to hide from one another. We were friends first, and we even dated. Now, now we're friends. Should should we share an email? Well, I guess we do share the one email account, doubtcast at com, but... W- would you guys like to, to have a joint email account? Keep ourselves accountable? Nothing personal, but the volume of
2: email that you get is: <laughs> well and that and, and more and that's, than I wish to read: I, yeah, It's not a matter of hiding
1: stuff tweets, from so. from my you guys, from My wife, it's the fact that I have so many emails I don't even read all of the emails that come in. I don't want to h- get her emails too, for crying well, out. Do, loud. do you
2: update statuses as to what you have for cereal every morning? I don't need to hear. About I, well <laughs> it's usually
1: pop tarts. Um, one gentleman. Who says this? He says, we cleaved our separate email addresses and lit a unity <laughs> candle on Yahoo that burns <laughs> brightly throughout the virtual landscape.
2: He said, I like how they use words like cleaved. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, another advocate, the guy who actually does the Stuff Christians Like blog, shares an email address with his, his wife. He says, it's so easy to make dumb mistakes online. We don't have this precedent for how these online friendships work. For me, it's just a safety measure. I don't want to be just floating out there. And they talk about how it's apparent just from the email address that they're married. That way that, you know, when they're sending out business emails that no one starts to think, oh, maybe this dude's interested in me. If
0: if I thought every contact my wife had online was a potential (laughs) marital affair, I would just live my life in such paranoia that I, I can't i can't imagine what goes through the heads of these people yeah it's, it's it must a, be terrifying,
1: much like back on our sex drugs and rock and roll episode we talked about the triple x church and, and this yeah yeah the software the accountability
0: software where you yep. in, you install spyware onto your own commute community I'm no
1: psychologist
2: guys, but have you ever heard the term projection <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely, but you know it's got to make them feel really good thinking, okay, he doesn't have a separate email account that he's using to hide stuff from me. We're all open, we're all sharing, wow. Next, implantable chips.
2: <laughs> I monitor my
1: spouse through my chip and is,
2: I can locate him anytime.
1: Unbelievable. Well, thought crime begins with the Bible. That's Yeah, absolutely. Oh, enough of that. And that's going to do it for us this week. Until next time, check out our forum at doubtcast at forummotion. It's 1m.net. Check out our website, www.doubtcast.org. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or even Zazzle at slash doubtcast. Keep sending in those emails and Gospel of Doubt entries. And until next time, stay rational. It, and I've only seen one Werner Herzog movie, and that's Grizzly Man. But it's it's yeah. one of my favorites ever. So clearly, well, this man is crazy
0: and deserved to get his skull crushed. But we cannot help but to see our own skulls crushed. Sounds in the like we don't need Rob. This is uh, <laughs> this is <laughs>
2: Jeremy doing Rob St. Mary doing Werner Herzog. This is very <laughs> meta. It, it, All right. it needs more cowbell. <laughs>